But Lord, thanks that you're sovereign, that you're ruling and reigning over all of our lives, that you ultimately cause or allow everything that we experience in life and promise to use it, even the downside, even what appears to be a negative, you promise to use for our good. We entrust ourselves to you this morning, Lord, and ask that uh, your words from John's Gospel this morning would encourage us and move us where you want us to go. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you guys have ever uh, taken a vacation or gone to some place you've, you've uh, been excited about going or done something you're excited about doing and you go there and you're underwhelmed or overwhelmed by the uh, other things that are going on. I'm thinking of vacation spots that you get someplace and you think it's going to be this great secluded outdoor spot and you find out it's fully commercialized and it's entry fees to get in and crowds, etc. It's a disappointment. Or have you ever... Uh, seen something or someone you valued highly uh, disrespected by someone else or put down, um, how would you feel? What, what would that look like for you? Or if someone was intentionally insulting your spouse or your children or your good friend, what would your response be? What would you feel like and what would you do? And those questions are meant to set the context for this morning's text. We're in John 2, short passage, verses 12 through 17. We'll read and we'll jump into it from there. John 2, verse 12. After this, that is the wedding at Cana that we looked at last time, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me, from Psalm 69, which is a messianic psalm. I want to fill this out a little bit. This is a great passage. I want us to do two things, to be able to conceptualize this visually and then to talk about some of the dynamics that are involved here. Put yourself physically, if you will, in your mind's eye in the the role of a pilgrim coming up to Jerusalem. If you guys know the geography of the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount is on what's called Mount Zion, and this would be a projection, kind of like we have in the Flint Hills. It's called a mountain by our standards, certainly the Rocky Mountains. It's no mountain, it's a hill. But it extends from the north so that it goes down the valleys, the Kidron Valley on the east side, and then up to the Mount of Olives. If we're, I'm looking south here as I'm talking, and that's a deep valley, deep valley to the south and the southeast, and then to the, am I saying that right? Sorry, southwest, and then to the west, a little smaller valley, and then to the north it goes up and ties into the rest of the hill. So it's on that southern end of this projection that the Temple Mount is located. It's on the highest spot in that area. Now, the temple Jesus is going to in this text is called Herod's Temple. And Herod, uh, sometime around 6 B.C. or so, had started uh, upgrading 
the temple that had been uh, rebuilt by the captives who'd returned from Babylon. And when he started this project, and by the way, it's interesting, this project went on until about 60, I think it was 64 AD. So it went on for about 70 years, and then it was destroyed almost promptly as soon as it was completed in 70 AD. But when Herod went to, to do this, it was really in a major expansion. So this, this Temple Mount area was not only on the largest projection of the hill, but it was built up. This whole area was built up so that if you were a pilgrim approaching from almost any direction, you had to go up to get to the temple. And the area that he had built up was about a 1,000 square feet. So think of it's over three football fields long and deep. That was the, the flat area you would go up to. And you would have to go up. It would be you would be looking up and you'd be walking up to get there. And as you came up, you'd come up steps and in some places ramps. In fact, if you like archaeology at all, uh, Jerusalem is, of course, one of the most fascinating places on earth. And archaeologically, there's still a lot that's in place there today that archaeologists have looked at, which ties back to this very time, the very steps that Jesus would have gone up and come down from are still visible. But as you went up, the first thing that you would go through would be these uh, colonnades on this squarish, not perfectly symmetrical, but squarish elevated platform area. And there were colonnades. They were two deep on the south, and they were single colonnade deep around the other perimeter wall, so that when you came up through the gate or through the portico, you would be in a covered area. And it was probably in this covered area that the incident that we read about this morning was taking place. The sales of the, the cattle, the other beasts for uh, sacrifice, as well as the money changers would have been, probably been located in these colonnades. This was like the Greek stoas or marketplace, uh, if, if you think back to the architecture of that day. So when you came in, the perimeter was surrounded by a covered colonnade. And when you came out of that, this largest, most exterior portion of the temple platform would be the court of the Gentiles. And each court's name told you uh, that uh, it told you who was able to come into that area and, and beyond which they could not proceed. So the court of the Gentiles was the area the Gentiles could come into. They couldn't go further. They could not go further within the temple area than the court of the Gentiles. So the biggest expanse outside the court of the Gentiles. Within that, there was a short wall. It was a partition, not very tall, but it had signs. And in fact, we've got two of these signs in possession today. They could have been the ones, very ones Jesus was looking at when he was there. They warned the Gentiles that to pass beyond this short wall of partition or wall of separation, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3 and 4, <clears throat> was, was death. The Gentiles were warned, you may come thus far and no further. So that's the court of the Gentiles. Within that was the court of the women. Jewish women could proceed into the next court. Then there was the court of the Israelites. Jewish men could proceed within to the next court. And there was the court of the priests. These are all going in, and they're all getting smaller. And then within the court of the priests, that's where the altar was. That's where the sacrifices were conducted. And then just above that, that was the temple with its holy place and then the holy of holies. So when Jesus comes up, on this occasion, the incident's probably taking place in this outer area, the court of the Gentiles, in this colonnade area, 
probably where the sales are occurring. Um, if you're back in the shoes of this pilgrim again and you've walked up and you've got into the temple area, let's assume that you're from uh, Alexandria and you've made the trip across from Egypt or you're from Rome and you've come in for one of the festivals, one of the feasts. Or maybe you're just from Beersheba down in the south or Galilee up in the north and you want to come to the temple and you want to offer sacrifices. The chances are good that you didn't bring your own animals with you. In fact, you almost certainly would not. So when you got to the temple area, there was a very, very legitimate need to be able to buy animals for sacrifice. And to pay the temple tax, you had to have the right coins. There would be the need to change your currency, whatever it was, for the right coins to pay the temple tax. So absolutely legitimate that for all these folks coming to the temple, they were going to need to buy things and they were going to need to change money. Not a problem with this. These things had to be taken care of. This was legitimate for sure. It's the way it was being conducted that became the issue here. And just think for a moment too, thousands of pilgrims would come up to the temple. Can you imagine the volume of sales that were associated with the sacrificial system and with the amount of money that flowed through the temple courts? This was huge. And as you can imagine, if you've got this incredible amount of money and all these transactions taking place, there's lots of potential for corruption. And almost certainly that's what was going on here. Most commentators think, uh, probably describe the situation like this. The, the high priests and the permanent priests there at the temple, remember some priests would just come in for their two-week course and then they'd go back home to whatever town they lived in in Israel. But there was a permanent group that took care of the temple. That was their full-time occupation as well as the high priests. And it's almost certain that these guys ran the temple like a good business. And what that probably meant was the money changers and the folks selling animals within the temple courts were probably paying a fee to the high priest and his family and the priesthood there. And the, the money changers were exacting not just, a, if you will, an honest profit, but they were gouging people. This is like getting to the, uh, you know, you get to a public arena for some event, and if you buy a soda for 50 cents at the store, it's $5 at the event. Well, that's what this was like. You're in the temple, and you've got to have the right coins. So they charged exorbitant fees for the transaction. Or you've come into Jerusalem to the temple from out of town, you've got to have the animals for sacrifice. So they jacked the price up in the temple courts where you've got to buy it. Not only that, but there would be these guys who would inspect your animal for you. Nothing against inspectors in general. But there were animal inspectors that would verify that the goat or the lamb or the bull you purchased was acceptable by the Levitical code to be offered as a sacrifice. Anyway, this was a money-making machine. And it was all taking place in God's name in the court of the Gentiles, in the sanctuary area, if you will, God's temple here on earth. There's a question uh, if you read the gospel accounts, there's a question, did Jesus cleanse the temple once or twice? Most argue that this uh, story occurred two times in Jesus' ministry, once early, which is probably this one in John, 
and once later at the tail end, very last weeks of his uh, life on earth. And in Luke 19 and Mark 11, there are parallel passages to this. We're not sure if they're talking about this occasion or another occasion. But in it, Jesus says in Luke 19, 46, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. This is a quote from Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, it's a great passage. You read it on your own sometime. God's describing these people who might come to Israel. And he's saying foreigners and eunuchs. And they're going to come to Israel and say, well, Lord, sort of. It's no fair because we can't be accepted. We'll be cut off from Israel. We won't be blessed in Israel like the Jews will. And God assures them that that's not the case. That, in fact, he will give the eunuchs, for instance, a name better than children in his temple. And that the foreigners, Gentiles, that's most of us, won't be put off, but they'll be welcomed in, into God's covenant group. And it's in that context that he says, my house will be a house of prayer. Luke doesn't finish the quote, but it's for all people. The people are the Gentiles. So just imagine this. Jesus, who gave Isaiah those words, comes into his temple in Jerusalem, and the court of the Gentiles is this marketplace. The place that he said the Gentiles would come to seek him, it would be a house of prayer for all people, for them. They come up, and the only part of the temple they can go to, the court of the Gentiles, is a market in which they're ripped off by everyone who can get into their pocket. And again, it wasn't that there wasn't a legitimate need to buy animals for sacrifice or to change money. There was a legitimate need. They've brought it into the temple itself, though, so that when these Gentiles would come up, can you imagine yourself? If you were Gentile seeking the God of Israel and you take this trek and you get up to the Temple Mount and you get in there and you come away feeling like I was ripped off. I went up to find God and I just found out a bunch of greedy people who wanted to steal my money from me. That's what was going on. And Jesus reminds them his temple, his house, his father's house was supposed to be a place that the Gentiles would come and find God and be blessed. And instead, they're being abused by the Jewish leaders who are supposed to be God's representatives. Do you remember in uh, 1 Samuel, there was a high priest who I confess I like. I personally like the guy, Eli, high priest Eli. But you know, God said that he honored his sons more than he honored God so that his sons were abusing those who came to the tabernacle to worship God. They were stealing their offerings. In fact, God said it so that people kick at my tabernacle. They see my tent. Remember, it's not a temple at this point. It's a tent, the tabernacle. They're avoiding it because you've corrupted it. Your sons have corrupted the place that people should come to seek my face. It's being scoffed at and looked down on because of the way your sons have abused it and abused those who come. And God curses Eli and Eli's household, and his sons are both killed the day the Ark of the Covenant is taken in battle. God is jealous about some things, and he will not be mocked. In fact, if you think about this too... um, When God says in the Ten Commandments that you shall not 
take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know, we think of cursing in God's name, using God's name as an expletive, and that is one way that you make his name vain, which just means empty or common. You take something that should be high and lifted up, and you kind of put it in the dirt. You make it dirty or plain or common. Uh, it also means that we, if we, we, you don't have to use God's name as an expletive to make his name common. You simply lower it, which is what was happening here. The temple, God's meeting place, the holy, lofty, and exalted God, his name was being used so the priesthood could make a better prophet. That was making his name vain. See, everything that was going on here was in God's name. But it was corrupt. It was corrupt. So that when Jesus comes up to the temple and he sees his father's name being attached to profiteering in the place the Gentiles were to find a relationship with God, he is incensed. He is ticked off big time. He is angry. It says the disciples remember later that it was written of him, zeal for your house will consume me. Again, that's from Psalm 69, which is a messianic, in fact, it's one of the key messianic psalms. The Greek zeal here, if you say, what does zeal mean? What does that look like? Zeal from the Greek zeo to boil or to be hot. Think of uh, putting eggs on to boil or water. You know, when that gets hot enough, it starts boiling. It's churning because of the amount of energy within it that's coming out. It can't be contained. It's boiling over. It's hot. This translates the Hebrew word from Psalm 69, kinah, which means ardor, zeal, or jealousy. Now, its use in the Old Testament is almost always related to God himself. God himself You know the great uh, Christmas passage, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, where it says, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God's zest, his zeal, his ardor, his passion, his jealousy will accomplish his purpose or his will. There's a similar word used in the Old Testament, kanah. It's from the same root, and it is always translated jealous. Jealous, so that in Exodus thirty four fourteen, don't worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Or Deuteronomy four twenty four, your God is a consuming fire, hot, boiling over, a jealous God, a zealous God. Uh, we oftentimes think of uh, the word jealous as a a negative. Uh, emotion. It is biblically, it is absolutely a positive emotion. There's no negative connected to it. To be jealous biblically is to be zealous for what is uniquely yours. So a husband should be jealous over his wife and his wife's affections. The husband should know that his wife has affections that are wholly devoted to him and to no one else. And the same about the wife for her husband. This is appropriate. This is biblical jealousy. 
God says that he is jealous. And this is not a bad thing. He is jealous over his people's affection for him. Affection, devotion, honor, passion that we should have for God and for no one and nothing else. I mean, think about this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, we're uniquely called to love God. And he says about himself and us, he is jealous over us. He is a jealous, consuming God. He is a zealous God. He has zeal or ardor for that which is uniquely his. And that's exactly what you see from Jesus in this passage. He comes into his dad's house and sees his dad's name being abused and drug in the dirt. And the place that his dad wanted set up as a place that people would come and find him in, he knows, just like in Eli's days, is, a, is actually not a place people will come and find him, but they'll be stumbled in their desire to find his father. And he is angry because he is zealous or boiling over with passion or jealousy for his father and his father's things. He doesn't excuse himself here. Oh, sorry, I just got a little angry and I shouldn't have. He's angry about the right thing because his passion or his zeal or his jealousy is for God his Father and his Father's things. His jealousy or his passion is where it belongs. It's easy to ask about us today if we are zealous, jealous over God and God's things. A passion is a word that gets used a lot today in Christian circles. And frankly, I think it's almost entirely lost its value because we talk about passion, and frankly, I know very few passionate Christians. But we, especially with worship music, passion. <clears throat> passion isn't just what you feel in your seat when you listen to good music. This is passion. And this wasn't just some momentary explosion, emotional outburst on Jesus' part. He was zealous. He was characterized by zeal or ardor or passion or jealousy for his father, for what rightfully belonged uniquely to his father and what went on in his father's name. He was jealous about, he was guarding God's honor. In fact, if you think, you remember when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray? Our Father, you who are enthroned in heaven, holy be your name, hallowed be your name. He was telling us when we think about God, when we pray, our first thought is to be, God, you, by your name, your name represents you, should be holy. And that means set apart. That means not common. That means special, set apart, reverenced. That's what we're called to. And Jesus comes into a situation and all that God meant to be holy and set apart, all those things he was jealous for, zealous over, was all made profane and common and unholy by commerce. By commerce. You remember he said you can't serve two masters? These guys had a master, and it wasn't God. 
They were in the ministry for a buck. They had sold themselves for a little better living, and they were using God's name to do it. There is no temple in Jerusalem today. There's a temple mount, and there's a couple Muslim shrines on it, but there is no temple. But God still has a temple in the world today. Listen to Paul's theology on the temple today. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you, speaking to the church group, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The temple of God is wholly set apart, and that is what you corporately are. Or in 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul says, We are the temple of the living God. God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the church today. In Ephesians 2.21, in whom the whole building, that's the church corporately, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. God says that today his temple is one that's made without hands. It's not made of rocks that you take out of the earth, but Peter says elsewhere, living stones. That's you and I. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew, when two or three gather in my name, I'm in the midst. Remember that the temple was the place God lived, if you will, or met with people. So, Paul says that the church gathered is God's temple on earth because the church, those Christians who meet together, are the place he comes and meets with and expresses his life on earth. It's through the church. Now, I want to be a little careful when I apply this, and so you take everything I say with a few grains of salt and you think about this. You look at some scriptures when you go home. Uh, Let me suggest that nothing has changed in many circles and quarters from this period in which Jesus went into the temple, his father's name being used to make a better profit by those who claimed his name. Uh, Many churches today are, frankly, large businesses in which the senior pastor is a CEO and the church board, the elders and deacons, are the... uh, the board, and they have a marketing strategy, and they have high finance, and they do lots of things in God's name, and it oftentimes boils down to primarily a financial venture. How many times have you turned on the television or radio to hear a Christian ministry asking you to send them money? How many Christian ministries would you say are characterized by pleading for your finances? That they're characterized by that. In fact, how often have you talked to someone who is not a Christian who would tell you that they do not care for Christianity because of the TV preachers always asking for money? This is the same thing. This is exactly what was going on in Jesus' day, and this is what made him mad. 
because his name was being used for somebody to make a few more dollars. This has been taken to ridiculous extremes. Ridiculous extremes. Unbelievable extremes. And many of these guys in these ministries are successful because simply of the simple gullibility of many people. But they're doing it in God's name, in Jesus' name. And this is not something that he appreciates. Push this a little further. Um, Christian ministry outside just the local church setting is big business also. I don't know if you're aware, but I'm not sure that there is a major Christian music publisher that is not owned by secular corporations. So that almost any Christian CD you and I buy is part of a large marketing strategy in a huge business venture owned not by Christians whose goal is God's glory. It's by stockholders who want to see a profit. I'm not sure there's one left. I think Word may have been the last one that was bought up by a secular concern. Think of all the, uh, think of the great hymns you you knew or sang in the past. You know who they were written by? Theologians. Primarily men who'd walked with God many years, who were immersed in their Bible, who had a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and expressed that in great theological terms in these songs. Where are most of the the popular, well-marketed songs coming from today? Don't take this too bad, but from 17-year-old girls who... Who, who don't know much about God and don't know theology. I'm not, I've got four lovely daughters. I'm not mocking young ladies. But in Christian ministry, ministry, what's called ministry, frankly, much, if not most of it, is business. Business as usual. And Christians are one more market. And remember, this is all done in the name of Jesus. Now, Just like the temple in Jesus' day, you would say, and we would all acknowledge, look, those folks had to be able to buy animals for sacrifice, absolutely. They had to be able to change money, absolutely. And remember, God said the priesthood was to get their living by the offerings. Not a problem. Not a problem. There was a legitimate need for all those things. But this was all corrupted. The motive was turned on its head. Remember, originally the motive was to honor and to worship God. And so these things were legitimate as long as they were in their proper place, which was they were, met, they were methods, if you will, of honoring God. And we could say that today of the churches or of ministries, that, that which goes by the name of a ministry. Christian artists, I use the term very loosely, um, <clears throat> We could say that there's a potential legitimacy in all that. But you've got to ask the question, why are they doing what they're doing? Why do we do what we do? What is the motivation behind the activity? Why do we do what we do? What are we doing and why are we doing it? That becomes the question if the Gentile walks into God's temple today, the church, the unbeliever, the, fo- the person that has not come to Christ, do they see God in his holy place and hear words of truth and freedom? 
Or do they see building programs and hear requests for more money? Do they rejoice in what God has provided for them in salvation and grace, what God has done for them? Or do they leave discouraged and disenchanted by a commercial venture that cannot heal their soul? See, we face exactly the same dynamics today. There's legitimate business aspects, if you will, of church life. We live in a world in which physical things are realities, and we need to address all those. But why are we doing it, and what are we doing? We've been involved in churches in the past who would not have bake sales, for instance, because their, their perspective was God will provide from his own people whatever he wants to do. And we're not going to go to the unbelievers who are our mission field to raise finances for God's things. I appreciated that. I appreciated that. There's business aspects to church life, to temple life, if you will. But what are we doing and why? That becomes the question. If Jesus walks into lion and lamb, does he put a cord together? Does he need to? Are we making his name or his father's name common and vain? Or are we making his name holy out of reverence and worship? And when people come and visit, are they being introduced to Christ and his father, or are they coming away seeing another commercial venture? Do they hear what God has provided for them, or do they feel like they're asking to provide for someone else? So we are the temple of God. The church, the local church, those places where people who call on Jesus' name meet together, we are the temple of God today. Beyond that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body, you and I individually, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Not only is the temple of God on earth, the church, Christians gathered together, but individually, if you've come to know Christ, if you've believed in him, you physically, your body, is the temple of God by his Holy Spirit. You and I physically are the temple of God. This has serious repercussions, ramifications for us too. Do you and I corrupt, make vain, God's name, as it were, related to the temple that we inhabit here, physically? And when I say this, physically, this is the least. This is the court of the Gentiles, if you will. This is not the most important thing. But physically, do you treat your body, which he says here is your temple, in a way (coughs) that honors God, and allows you as much as possible physically to do the things God wants you to do. I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but let me say some things, just volunteer some things. If you smoke cigarettes, are you corrupting God's temple? You are. Physically, you can't do those kinds of things and make God's temple holy. Do you have a pattern or practice of overeating? In our culture, I mean, you've got to consciously be proactive about not overeating. Do you overeat? Do you get even a little bit of exercise just so that 
you can do the minimums. Keep your body going as long as God wants you serving him here on earth. I met with a guy, oh, a few years back. He was in his mid to late 70s. And he'd walked with the Lord for a number of years. And he kept physically fit in part so he could spend, this was one of the things he told me he did, so he could ski with his grandchildren. Not because skiing was the end all, but because skiing with his grandchildren was, he saw this important way that he spent time with them so he could interact with them and pass on his faith to them. Disciple, or if you will, or nurture them. Physically. So physically, and again, I'm telling you up front, this is not the most important area, but it is but it does have its, its importance. Paul says physical exercise, it's of a little profit. There's some profit. And as stewards over God's temple, we should take care of our body in a way that honors God and leaves us free, as free as we can be physically, to do the things he wants us involved in. That's one thing. More important, and just as in the temple in Jesus' day, you go from the outside in to God's presence, in our emotions in our mind in our spirits are we corrupting polluting the temple of god this gets to the things about what do we think about what do we take in what television do we watch what magazines do we read what books do we read what songs do we listen to you know paul says elsewhere that that everything's clean that is to the pure all things are pure music is not inherently good or bad it's what we do with it Food is not inherently good or bad. It's what we do with it. What kinds of things, though, are we taking in? What kinds of music do we enjoy? Does it encourage us emotionally and spiritually? Or does it tear us down? What kinds of television programming do we watch? Does it encourage us spiritually? Does it honor Christ? Or does it dishonor? Does it build us up as his temple? Or does it corrupt us as his temple? Uh, Paul says at the end of this verse, you are not your own. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he says the same thing. You were bought with a price. You don't own yourself. And when we view our body and our life on earth as a steward, we realize we give an account. Just like the priests, the high priests or the priests who ran the temple in Jerusalem, see, they didn't own that. They were stewards caring for something that belonged to someone else. They would give an account. And that's the same way we should see our body, our minds, our thoughts. We don't belong to ourselves. We are not in control or in charge of our own lives, ultimately. We belong to someone else. So that even when we view our own life, we need to say we're God's temple, and we need to honor his temple. We need to do right by God in the way we treat ourselves physically and in what we put into our mind and our thoughts, what comes out of our mouth. Proverbs says, watch over your heart with all diligence from it flow the issues of life. What are we putting in? So think about this. Every day, no matter what you're doing, you are taking Christ with you because you're his temple. So when other people at work or your neighbors or anybody that you come in contact with When they meet the temple of God, meaning you, what do they see? Are they drawn to Christ, or is his name vain in your life? What do they come away with? 
Ask yourself the same question about yourself that you do about the church in general. This does not mean that you, you're a nice, nice person. I, in no way do I mean this. Uh, Jesus is not nice, and he doesn't tell us to be nice. Nice is an American virtue. It's not a biblical one. But is Christ's character being formed in you? Do people meet Christ when they meet you and I, since we are his temple? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit. That means to put out the passion or the fire of the Holy Spirit within you. You you and I do that when we say no to what God wants us to do. We quench something God wants to do. Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we do things He does not want us to do. He's with us. And we have the power by the choices we make to grieve the Spirit of God and to quench the Spirit of God. And he says, don't do those things. You are the temple of God. His Spirit dwells within you. So that in Jesus' day in the temple, he was zealous. He was boiling over. He was jealous over his father, his father's things, and his father's name. And he's still zealous and jealous over his temple today. And that's us corporately, and it's you and I individually. So, are we making his name holy in his temple? Or are we marketing his name for a profit or polluting his temple with what we bring in? Let me close with some other verses out of Psalm 69. <clears throat> that said, zeal for your house consumes me. Psalm sixty-nine thirty. instead of polluting the temple, I will praise the name of God with song and shall magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart be revived. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his, even who are prisoners. Let's pray. Lord, Isaiah said that he lived among unclean people. And in his presence, Lord, in your temple in heaven, he recognized that that for all the holiness, so to speak, of his own life, he himself was unclean. And Lord, we have no illusion, I trust, of any kind of inherent holiness within ourselves. We recognize that our righteousness in your eyes is filthy rags. But Lord, thank you that you have clothed us with the perfect righteousness of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that we stand in your presence perfect because of him. And Lord, we pray that as members of your body, this temple on earth, we pray that you'd keep us from making vain or empty your name. Lord, help us not attach your name to that which is simply self-serving on our part. 
Lord, I know that you, tell, you say in Peter that judgment begins in your own house. And Father, I know that the church that bears your name in the world today is in so many ways a very unholy commercial place. And as Billy Graham said of our country, if you failed to judge this country, you would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, I know that if you cleanse the temple in Jerusalem, it's certainly your desire to cleanse your temple, the church today. Help us to take an inventory, Lord. Help us to see if we've brought the marketplace into your courts. Help us to make sure we're not a stumbling block to those who would come to know you through us or through this church. It is a painful thing sometimes, Lord, to recognize the ways in our own life in which we pollute your temple. But help us to come to terms with those things and uh, help us to seek to honor you. Lord, we are not our own. We belong to you. Help us to honor you in the church and in our lives. And may those who see us or meet us or those who come to this church or your church in the world today find you and find your name high and lifted up and not be stumbled or turned away because of those who claim your name. Lord, help us to be zealous and jealous for you and your things as you are. In Jesus' name, amen.